from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli here today with Chris Beam and Candace Watts-Smith. Listeners, you might have noticed that this episode is going to be a little bit different rather than our normal theme music. At the top of the show, you heard a clip from the Ever Funky Lowdown, a new album from Wynton Marcellus and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. And we are very excited, very fortunate to have Wynton on the show today to talk about this album and the themes that underlie it. And we've all been listening to it. I think we all agree this is a serious work of art and something that requires great reflection and really ties into a lot of the themes of democracy that we talk about on the show all the time. On top of that, this is a master craftsman at the top of his game. And frankly, I'm a little embarrassed that I hadn't heard of this piece before, but listening to it, it's just like, you know, who am I to say, but it is a minimum, an amazing work of art. And it does, as you say, Jenna, reflect a lot of themes that we talk about from the perspective of academics and activists, but here's an artist reflecting on the same themes and it is absolutely worth our investigation, our reflection. Yeah, into this work of art, it tells us a lot about the history of the United States, but generally speaking, the histories of empires and how they work Mm -hmm. and what challenges are kind of everyday our everydayness brings to the goal of democracy. And Mm -hmm. so my thought when I was listening to this, I was reminded of the phrase, the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is a really fancy way of saying there are thinkers, Marx, Freud, Nietzsche from the 19th century and early 20th century, who were arguing that, look, here's what you think is going on. Here's what you think you're doing and believing, but none of that is true. What's really happening is underneath, and I'm going to show you what that is, and I'm going to make it clear to you for the first time your role in it, and it's only by doing that, only by presenting you with the truth so that the scales can fall from your eyes, and you can see for the first time that you're being hustled, that you can actually genuinely respond to it. So I suppose looking at the libretto and listening to the Ever Funky Lowdown from my perspective is that I read it through the lens of Charles Mills's epistemology of ignorance, which I think is also echoed by scholars like Carol Anderson and Ian Haney Lopez, Derek Bell, who is a central figure in critical race theory. But ultimately, it's kind of, we know what we want to know, and we don't know what we don't want to know. And that works if you are trying to produce a society that is hierarchical, that money is central to the way that things work, that self-interest is. And You know, we sometimes don't want to know the answers that undermine the way that we think about ourselves Mm -hmm. and think about our society as maybe fair, egalitarian, meritocratic, so on, and And, and and, democratic. And and decent, right? (laughs) (laughs) So in the CD era, and same for like the records era, you listen to it from front to back. Mm -hmm. And now 
and I'm not, you know, I do this too. You kind of listen, you just put on a playlist in the background and you get a mood. You don't necessarily need to listen and you can mm -hmm. just let the music wash over you. But this requires a deeper level of engagement. And so I was really pleased to engage with this material and learn more about Wynton Marcellus and his kind of orientation toward jazz and mm -hmm. democracy and how he links the two and sees them in relation to one another. And so like jazz, which demands more than just letting it wash over you, democracy also requires more than just, than politics. So when Marcellus says that jazz is this inherently cooperative thing. And we always think about jazz as being improvisation and free and, you know, self-expression, which of course it is, right? But he's saying that expression, that freedom only works when people are cooperating, when they're working together, when they're collaborating, when they're taking each other seriously as fellow participants and respecting their contribution. And man, if you wanted to have three sentences that describe what we need to make our democracy work better, you could do a lot worse. Yeah, no, that's a great transition, I think, into the interview. We pick up talking about some of these themes on jazz and democracy and, and how they're similar. So yeah, we're really excited to have Winton with us on the show today. So you'll hear now another clip from the Ever Funky Lowdown as we head into the interview. Wenton Marcellus, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it is it's my pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you so very, very much. Look forward so, to it, Jenna. Yeah. So you have been writing and speaking about this notion of democracy as jazz, jazz as democracy for a while now. And, and before we dive into some of your more recent work, I'm wondering how and when these two strands came together for you. I think when I was in high school, I always loved uh, history and, and the Constitution. And then I combined that with the teaching, I also went to an art school, that the music of Beethoven or the music of Wagner had something to do with their political condition. So I put the kind of idea together and being from the 1960s and my father being a jazz musician, he was always talking about our way of life and how the music is related to that way of life. And I re would read books that were always talking about jazz musicians and what they knew about the music and, and how the music was connected to our way of life and the pursuit of equality and justice and all of these things. If you remember in the 60s, there was a lot of records, John Coltrane and Love Supreme, Fables of Fathers, Mingus, Max Roach, Freedom Now, that's more 50s going into 60s. Well, my father and I were always listening to that kind of music. So I was aware of the connection between the music and the arts and the struggle for equality and freedom and for democracy. Yeah, and that's something that you have really started to articulate uh, in your, your recent work, the Ever Funky Lowdown, your forthcoming piece, The Democracy Suite. So as I understand it, it's personal freedom, individual expression, and common ground. Can you talk about how all of those things play out in jazz and then maybe how you see them also playing out in, in democracy? 
Sure. The first is uh, just the belief that your nations and groups of people are not granted endless art forms. They participate in art forms and they are endlessly creative and come up with many things. But every now and then, ideas and practices congeal into an art form. And that art form mythologizes your way of life. So generally, people study their art forms for revelations. The problem in the United States was that revelation came from Afro-Americans. So it created a problem in the culture. We can't accept a revelation from this group of people because they are the do not pass gold caste. So that's why we have these ongoing dialogues. Of the three components of jazz, only one of them ever really comes under fire. The first is improvisation, which is personal freedom and the expression of that. The second is swing. That's the one that comes under fire because swing is a matter of balance, negotiation, the sharing of agency. Just as in our culture, we struggle with sharing agency. And then the third is the blues, which gives us an optimism that's not naive. So it means that the blues, we recognize the stuff, something is wrong, but we feel like we can make it better by use of our personal freedom and our ability to find and nurture common ground. So the other two tie into that third one. Yeah, and there's a struggle there too, right? Your work has kind of touched on this for your whole career. And I wonder, is there always, does there have to be that element of struggle? I mean, not that we may ever fully realize some of these struggles, but what happens if we do? Where would everybody draw their inspiration from then? How do you think about those kind of things? You know, I think that there is struggle because in this time there is, and it's in everything. Childbirth is a struggle. To create ideas is a struggle. To contend with yourself is a struggle. To balance your own needs with your wants and your, your needs and wants with your abilities. <laughs> I don't care who you are, you're going to struggle. Then you have health struggles that are inherited and you're going to struggle with those. And you have struggles in your personal relationships that come down through your family systems. You're going to struggle. So it's best and easiest to embrace the fact that it will be a struggle, but don't get addicted to struggling. Instead, become addicted to riding waves and finding, like John Coltrane, interesting interview he gave, he said he was trying to find the one through line through all these complex harmonies. And it was, it was interesting. So just the thought of, let's try to figure out how to thread a needle and find like a kind of common space that allows us to achieve balance. Let's dance on the edge of this mountain and figure out how to find our equilibrium in a place of uncertainty. And I think that's what we have to do. Now, I do believe that eventually with the whole progression of humanity in the world, and maybe even the worlds, that there comes a point of uh, the kind of end game of a catharsis, like where there's a realization and there's the disillusion of polarity. I believe that will happen. I don't know why I believe it, but I don't think well, we're anywhere. <laughs> yes. You've also spent the past 40 years touring the country, touring the world, talking to all kinds of different people. Do you perhaps draw some inspiration there? And maybe also, have you observed any changes in the state of our discourse in that time? You know, I think, yeah, I've talked to a lot of people over time. I think that uh, it's hard for me to say. I think. Uh, I don't think enough time has passed for me to really see whether there's been a change. I think maybe three or 400 years, you can tell. I don't feel like even if you live to be 100, technology changes, of course, you know, these kind of things that are easy earns. Something is not difficult to have changed, but the technology of the human soul doesn't change. Are we less 
hurt? Do our feelings get less hurt? Are we less greedy? Are we less loving? Are we not caring? I mean, we have much more obvious open discord in our country. It could seem at this period, but if you remember back to the 60s, all the killing that took place and the, you know what I mean? Hey, I don't think I'm gonna live long enough to see like that kind of. Yeah, you mentioned the concept of agency before, and that to me is is related to this notion of power. And that, that idea of, of power really spoke to me as a theme on the ever funky lowdown. It's kind of this, game, right? You know, Mr. Game, your your narrator in the piece about who has power, who gets power, who keeps it, who holds it. How do you see power fitting into this larger story you're trying to tell? It's interesting because you can go back to your, uh, when you're growing up, if you have a little brother or sister, how do you treat them? You take their stuff because you can take it. Do you share things with them? Like, what do you create? Or even with your parents, you have a certain type of control over kids. At a certain point, they're going to do what you tell them to do. And how do you deal with them? But our world is such beauty and and complexity and simplicity. It's it's no way to summarize the kind of power agency game. But I do want to say that it's interesting. You know, it's the two, two strains of thought and action. And they are endemic and different. I mean, and they're expressed in different mythological beliefs, systems. One kind of Sumerian belief system is uh, is predatory, like a select elite group exploits a larger group of less enslaved. So Sumerians said, we created these people to do work and somebody messed up and gave them a little bit of consciousness, but they're really just basically, uh, and that's what you see at work in our country by and large. We're gonna exploit a large class of white workers who are not as educated as an elite, and we're going to use racism to make them think, here's the problem over here while we take their money and subject them to all kinds of stuff, make it so that they don't work, do whatever. All the machinations, they've been going on since before the Civil War. So that's one. And the other is a symbiotic, which is reflected more in the book religions that we've, and I would even include Buddhism. It's not a book religion. You know, Buddhism is just a kind of a the leadership invests in the largest population of fellow citizens, and they create a more equitable and livable world for all. Now, that's difficult to invest when you could take. So if you, if you think that the main problems we currently have in the world, if you think about the realms that we all as human beings, the first would be business, trade. We learn about trade immediately. You know, I mean, we could be little kids. We, when I was growing up, we played marbles. And we knew what, how much a cat eye was worth as opposed to this. We start trading marbles immediately. We didn't have anybody tell us. So we have business. We have a, a religion. This is what we believe. We have politics, which is how we negotiate with each other. And the trick is civics. Because civics is all investment. Education, stuff like a fire department. People, the fire department is very different from a police department. Fire departments in America, even now, many are volunteer. Because the thinking is, if your house burns down, mine is going to burn down too. Whereas the police department tends to be the military wing of a political establishment. So when you start to have corruption in all of those realms, where religion is more interested in money, where all of civics is not investment but taking, I'm going to charge you for education, charge you for healthcare, charge you to put a candy machine and charge you to get, now I'm businessing you. And politics, obviously... I'm going to buy my candidates. I'm going to create a thing where all they do is create a kleptocracy that distributes money to these elite groups. And all we have to do is fool this mass of dumb people. And we'll just trot some minority group out and allow them to sacrifice them. And then we can keep stealing this money. 
So everything just can't be about making or taking money at all costs. And we have to come to that. And we're like the cutting edge of the world on that. So we're going to see, and it's not even predicated on this election. It's just the general direction our populace is going to go in. And are we going to be predatory and try to be an empire? Or will we be symbiotic and focus more on being a republic? Right. And that's the struggle, as you said, it's been going on since the founding of the country and certainly others as well. And I've also, speaking of the founders, I, I heard you describe them as beboppers uh, recently. Can, can you talk a little bit more about right. that comparison? When you look at the diversity of talents of, you know, Madison and Hamilton and even Washington, even if people kind of try to disrespect Washington, watch their important purpose and Ben Franklin. And you, you start to look at the skills that people uncommon. Now you have a whole history of your nation. You did not have another time period since then where you had those types of people in the foreground, three or four certifiable geniuses. And in Bebop, we had the same thing. You had Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, Kenny Clark. We haven't had a time of those kind of concentration of thinkers in one place who could actually achieve the things that they achieved. You had Miles Davis, Max Roach, all kind of hovering around at the same time. And that's in the way that I meant that. Yeah. So thinking about that game you were describing, there's a a thought out there that if you try to find common grounds, that it is in some ways just perpetuating existing. It's it's just kind of another way of perpetuating existing power structures or keeping this game going, right? I mean, so how do you see that notion of finding common ground fitting in with this larger game that's happening in our society? Well, if you're finding common ground, you're not trying to exploit people. So you're not fitting into the existing. Now, all of a sudden, your kid's education, you're not fighting over whether you want nutritious food. You're not fighting over whether people should be able to pay for sickness. You're not fighting over people having $400,000 in student debt. That's not a battle that you're having Mm -hmm. because you're thinking of the larger ground and you're saying, well, okay, this country gave me X and this. I want people's kids to be educated. I don't want them to not. I want to make sure we have a good junior college system. I want to make sure our state universities are well-funded. I want to make sure I don't want my sanctioned violence force committing crimes against citizens because they don't have money or because they always show up as predators in movies or because they even degrade themselves. I don't want just certain things are going to go away because you don't want that. You know, that's not what you're interested in doing. It's like, it's like a person comes home from work. They don't want to come home from work and start hollering, screaming at their husband or hollering, screaming at their children or husband, hollering, screaming at the wife and kick the dog and do everything because they're anxious about stuff. If they don't want to create that environment in their home, regardless of their personal situation, they're going to try not to do that. Doesn't mean they succeed, but that's not going to be their goal. Their goal is not going to be, when I come in here, all of y'all shut up. You understand? Yeah. So we have to decide, do you really feel good about being what you are? And it doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. And if you really feel good about it, okay. But your problem is not the right. Your problem is not the left. You are the problem. Yeah, that's, and that, that again comes back to that, that idea of agency, right? You have the ability to change and control some of those things. 
Two more questions here before we let you go. One thing that's often pointed to when we think about the state of our democracy in the U.S. and how people feel about it is the decline of civics education. I wonder where you see arts education fitting in to civics education or education creating citizens more broadly in our schools. Well, I think that um, when people have arts education, they have a larger sense of the world. And if you really think about it, they have a larger sense of what the world was. The more you have an understanding of the texture of life and the ebb and flow of life, and the more you're put into an understanding of human circumstances, you're able to have a nuanced view. And the more nuanced your view is, the more you can find simplicity and complexity, ironically. The less nuanced your view is, It's kind of like in a biblical sense what the devil does. The devil simplifies things for you. Go get them. It's like, so, yeah, the fact that we've chosen not to educate our kids in our arts and the fact that we've chosen not to teach geography and civics and things that give us a sense of the world and our place in it is an indication of a deep, deep troubled ignorance and a lack of understanding. But once again, let's go back to what we were saying about that Sumerian mythology. If I just need you to work a job and I don't want you to participate in nothing, I don't need you to be educated. I would rather you be ignorant. It's a choice we have to make. Now, if I want to interact with you and I want you to be powerful and I want to learn and I don't want to curate my life with you as a bit player or you or you as an extra in it, I want you to be educated. I want you to know about the arts because you're going to teach me. And we still have a ways to go with understanding that and the importance of that especially with civics. (laughs) That even goes for the art we consume too, right? I mean, you can listen to what's on the radio and just take that in, let it wash over you. Or you can listen to music like you and your contemporaries make that does require that deeper thought, deeper understanding. Right, we have to laugh at a lot of that stuff. It's gotten so (laughs) ridiculous. These are just products that are put together by teams of people. And uh, I don't even know what to say about it at this point. You know what I mean? I've critiqued it for years. Mm -hmm. So I I feel like we think of art as a product and as something that's connected in some way to some type of sexual taboo that if you sell it to an 11 or 12-year-old, you have a fan for life. And uh, Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But I think that uh, we can understand that art is consciousness and mythology made physical. We're capable of understanding it. And that it's creation, recreation, and it's recreation. So one thing, you have a thing that is creation, you make up something, it's recreation, it can be fun. But it's also recreation, like the priest comes out and they say another thing, the priestess does this, and that means this. It's connected to the repetition that is important for us to learn what it means to be us. And that, you know, it inspires inner growth and contemplation. And most importantly for us, it inspires discernment. But, you know, discernment is important in this time because you really don't know when people are lying to you if you don't know. And now there's so many lies going on, you need to be able to sift through things that sound like they're the same, but they're not the same. I think art and that type of education puts you in touch with the mythic substance of human history. And it teaches you how to think and to perceive symbolically. Then you know, you can't have a postmaster general getting rid of mailboxes. (laughs) It's crazy. Just symbolically, it's crazy. You can't have people trying to figure out how to have you not vote under the guise of protecting rights. Just symbolically, art helps you also to develop your attention span and your perspective. So, yeah, 
I could go on and on. You know, I could go on and on. One last question for you. We say on the show quite a bit that democracy takes hard work. It's not natural. It's not easy in some respects. And you are perhaps one of, if not the most dedicated, driven people we've ever had on the show. Um, what's your North Star or what advice might you have for people who are still aiming or still striving to have that level of dedication to being fully part of our democracy? I got two things I like to say to my staff. It makes them laugh. And as talkative as I am, it's let's see, can't wait. <laughs> we had to be urgent. And we have to be ready. And that should be your state of mind, urgent. Just come with the urgency. Can't wait. Let's see. Let's get to it. Great. All right. Well, <laughs> uh, Winton, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thank you so very much, Jenna. Very appreciative. You have to believe in yourself to be successful. I see you have accepted that concept quite well. Too much negativity and reflection are like all vegetables and no cake. Follow me while I explain what this is gonna take. I'm Mr. Game. Success is my middle name. I became famous for my financial twerking that showed folks how to make money without even the money working. We could go on and on about me, but we have a lot of stuff to do, and tonight's proceedings are all about you. Terrific. That was just great. And there's so much there, and we're going to probably end up bouncing around a little. But, Candace, here's one thing that I really took from that interview. And it's something we talked about a little bit in the beginning. The idea that we're all diminished by this game. I mean, no matter where you come out on this scale, even the elites, even the ones who are in control, are all selling their own humanity cheaply, right? Because in this game, money is the only value and making money is the only way to evaluate something. So you have, we all market ourselves, we all brand ourselves, we're all looking for ways, opportunities. And of course that's part of life and it's always, we always have to eat, right? But if that's the only criteria, if that's the only standard by which we say, this has value, then we are going to miss things like jazz. We're going to miss things that allow us a, a fuller expression of our humanity. And I don't think that is some kind of airy thing. This is, Kant said, <laughs> treat people as ends and not merely as means. We have to treat people as means, but if we only treat them as means, we are there's something fundamentally unsustainable, not to mention inhuman about that. And I think that comes out a lot in this libretto. Sure. And we can touch on various themes that highlight this. One of the ones that I think he articulates really well is how this plays out for education and art mm -hmm. and civics education. And my own work, I've been thinking about demographic change. And one of the things that we see in the U.S. is that the United States is both getting older mm -hmm. and so it's graying 
And then younger people tend to be people of color. So it's right. browning. So it's browning mm -hmm. and graying. <laughs> and in this kind of neoliberal era where people are withholding and looking for the market to solve problems and looking for privatization, what this means is that by holding back on public education, for example, and ensuring that kids get good arts education and good civics education, we diminish our democracy because we diminish the amount of people who have critical thinking skills. Right. We diminish the ability for a larger number of Americans to have an understanding of history and connection across time and space. And there's one part in the libretto where Mr. Game says, we are winners. We don't reflect, we celebrate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was so clutch because what arts education and civics education does is to require us to learn to reflect. Right. And so like, what are the implications for democracy when we withhold being helpful to others and when we prioritize money and self-interest over the good of the whole? At some level, it is unfair and almost a different kind of elitism for people like us who are in this very privileged position and who would have had the opportunities to get very well educated and spend a lot more time reading than most people do to say, you need to think critically, you need to do this when many of these people are worried about paying the rent, right? And so the idea of being in a position where they didn't have to worry about paying the rent is incredibly appealing. And, you know, I think that one of the kind of related things that Wynton Marsalis mentions is talking about like creating kleptocracies and who gets to keep the money and how does this play out in the United States? And this point feels so close to home. And I think the point that you're trying to raise is that we've seen for decades where great society programs are being rolled back with the help of dog whistle politics. And for what? so that Black people can't get healthcare or so that the youngest generation of Americans don't get access to good public education or so that poor people and people of color don't get access to affordable housing. And this shift toward neoliberalism relies on convincing people that some people are undeserving of high quality education, health, housing, good outcomes. So I think that this business of us kind of thinking about like, oh, well, what's the best way of doing democracy, I think is required that everyone needs more space to be thinking about these issues so that we could actually produce a society where everyone has like a modicum, at least of social welfare mm -hmm. and are living a decent life. And that's not the situation that we have necessarily in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a sentiment that is not radical, right? But Witten Marcellus would argue that the only way you get there is by the first step is realizing that you're being hustled. Yeah. The thing about, I think, the libretto and also the ever funky lowdown is that it is a satire. It is maybe a polemic it has like this very dark humor. Yeah, there's some facts that are very funny, but kind of, you're right, dark, um, yeah. And the thing is, is that when you're listening to it, it seems very in the moment. 
that it's almost feels like irony is dead these days, these yeah, right. days. And so you're like, oh, is Mr. Game Mr. Trump? Uh-huh. But it's not, right? Like Mr. Game is this kind of hustler, snake oil salesman mm-hmm. who will you'll sell him your soul and then he'll sell it back to you for a little bit more and then you feel good about it. And so in that way, I thought it was just really impressive and that it uses this particular form of jazz to tell that story and to tell the story of American inequality, American slavery, American capitalism, There's a part where he says that art form mythologizes your way of life. And then he goes on, and this really struck me because the next line is, he says, generally people study their art forms for revelations. But there's also just this underlying sense of anger Mm -hmm. that, you know, he's just slapping us and saying, don't you see what's going on here? You're just being, you're, you're just getting played Mm -hmm. and why don't you, why won't you just see that and fight back? And that's probably the most positive takeaway you can have from the whole thing is that take a look at this, see whether it resonates with your experience. And then when you see that it does, fight it. Don't succumb to these kind of limitations. And I wonder, and I I think that deep inside, I am hoping that this is one of those moments in history mm that is going to bubble up into major change. And I think that people are awakening to some of what the game is, what Mr. Game has been trying to tell people, that the pandemic has really made clear to more people. And I think it's really important to note that people of color especially have been well aware of the game for a very long time, Mm -hmm. but that there are more people and more middle-class white educated people who are vulnerable in a way that they hadn't been before. And perhaps this is one of those moments where, as we've been saying across the season, that things are going so wrong that we're really understanding how things are supposed to work and that they're recognizing the role of norms versus what's written on paper. They're learning how the Supreme Court works and how many justices there could be and who's responsible for getting bills passed, really, not just like Schoolhouse Rock's version. And so I wonder if this is a moment where people will get together and there's a stew that's being stirred up that might bring us closer to what democracy in this country could be to provide better outcomes for more people. I don't have any from your mouth. I mean, I <laughs> I think it's, I mean, there's always risk associated with moments like this, but there's mm-hmm. also opportunity, right? And, mm-hmm. and you can't have one without the other. And that is enough reason for all of us to kind of reflect on uh, contributions like mentioned Marcellus's. So uh, I think this is a good time to kind of bring this in for a landing. Once again, it's not often that we have someone of uh, Wynton Marcellus's uh, level of achievement, talent, contribution, and we're so grateful to him. And thanks to Jenna for the interview. I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watt-Smith. 
We're going to link the libretto to the show notes alongside where to buy the album. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mark Stitzer, Jen Bortz, and Chris Kugler. And additional support comes from WPSU's Andy Grant, Emily Reddy, Chris Allen, and Craig Johnson. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.